Hello and welcome to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, your host Liam Caswell. Join me as we lean in, get curious and take strategic and meaningful action to build our high performance nursing careers. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I am introducing Tim Ferriss to you. He is the CEO of Leadership Genius and is one of Australia's leading strategic advisors to CEOs. He's had particular success in leading, coaching and developing CEOs who are new to the role to unlock their leadership genius. I love that. He has served as a business advisor for the past 15 years, along with leading companies and large mission-based not-for-profits. Tim is a firm believer that the failure or success of a business comes from the organizational's culture. And don't we know that here at High Performance Nursing? Tim believes it's imperative that a CEO understands and guides that culture from day one on the job. Unfortunately, the demands of the new position can be so daunting that culture is ignored if the newly minted CEO isn't careful. After successfully working with hundreds of C-level executives, Tim has finally put all of his knowledge into a new book, CEO Strategy, Getting It Right for the First Time. Breaking down what a new CEO has to think about prior to beginning their duties and what needs to be done when they step through the door. CEO strategy, getting it right the first time is a must read. For anybody stepping up the corporate food chain for the first time, I can vouch that this book is brilliant and you don't want to miss the offer that Tim has for all high performance nursing listeners as we move through this podcast. So make sure you stick around to get access to Tim's amazing high performance nursing listeners only offer. Enjoy. So hello, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. How are you going? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Liam. Thanks so much for having me and been looking forward to this chat for a while. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming. It has indeed. (laughs) From our first initial connection, but super grateful you're here. Let's dive in. Let's, um, can you tell us a little bit about your kind of story up until this point? Sure. Well, I was born at a very young age. And uh, since then, I I mean, that's a dad joke. It's a bit early in the morning um, for that. But um, I began my leadership journey pretty early in life, like right through primary school, high school, I ended up school captain. So I kind of I started the leadership journey early. And looking back, I think I thought I was pretty good, but now I'm looking back going, man, I had some really, really big gaps um, mm-hmm. in my uh, in my leadership capability, even though I had a love of it and kind of, you know, I felt comfortable with the concept of being a leader. Boy, I, I had some really big gaps. Um, from there, I cut my teeth as a leader, as a pastor of a church in suburban Sydney of about 300 people and you know, as soon as I say that, people think robes and collars and bells and smells. And, you know, while I have friends who are in that world, my world was very, very different to that. Um, I wouldn't often wear a tie. Um, I would often wear jeans. It was a very different kind of environment. And I got to cut my teeth as a leader in that environment because I was largely working with volunteers. And one of the things with volunteers is you can't pull the, I will stop paying your salary. I will fire you in order to motivate people. So I very quickly had to find different ways to motivate people to, to engage with their motivation and get them mobilized towards a mission and a vision that was compelling to them. So when I then transferred over to the corporate world, and became a leader in the corporate world, 
I found it a lot easier than a whole lot of my peers who were cutting their teeth in leadership in the corporate world because they had the idea that, well, I can just, I can motivate you by going, well, you'll be fired if you don't do what I say. Um, and they found it a lot more difficult because people kind of went, well, before you do that, how about I exit out because this is no fun. Um, whereas I already came in with the mindset of, I have to find a different way to motivate these people. And I kind of carried that over and found that it was a whole lot more effective. So while it sounds like an unusual beginning to a leadership journey in the corporate space, I actually think it set me up for success. And um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that because it meant I had to learn to engage people rather than just, you know, threaten punishment all the time. Mm, it sounds like a super valuable lesson though at that point, right? To, yeah. to have that insight so early. And I think that's something I resonate with in my, my career up until this point is recognizing that the people matter, um, which yes. just seems when you say that loud, it seems so obvious, yet so many <laughs> seem to have a problem with that. It does seem a little elusive <laughs> at times, for sure. Yeah, so I, I love that. So now you obviously wear many hats, um, but you are a strate- strategic advisor to, to CEOs. Um, yes. What does a day in the life look like as a strategic advisor to, to the big bosses at the top? <laughs> that, that sounds very impressive, doesn't it? Um, the, the reality, I do love what I do, but there is no day that is the same. You know, um, On one day, I could be spending some extended time with a CEO or a general manager talking through you know, business and strategic people issues. On another day, I could be spending time with either a different or even the same CEO working through their life pain and their, you know, their issues with their parents growing up and, and all of that stuff that, you know, people tend to think you should see a psychologist for. Um, on other days, I'll be facilitating uh, groups or executive teams or mid-level teams on how to become more effective. And on other days, I could be analysing a whole heap of measurement data from culture surveys that we've done and writing really in-depth reports um, that are quite technical in nature. So there is no one day that's the same. And I guess that's one of the reasons I love what I do um, is there is no, no, no two days are the same. Yeah. But it could be anything from being in front of a group of people to being in front of one to sitting at my desk and ploughing through all sorts of data to find trends and, and to really get to the root cause of what's going on in the culture to help them fix it. Mm, and just yeah. about anything in between. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, how diverse and exciting. As a nurse, that excites me because obviously our days are never the same. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and we're yeah. doing everything left, right and centre. Um. It would. It might surprise some people listening that CEOs have a strategic advisor. Um, uh-huh. Like you know, I wasn't that familiar with leadership coaching up until a few years ago, um, yeah. as a, as a thing per se. So, um, you know, what is it about uh, leadership, like coaching and, and being a strategic advisor, that you really love? Um, I love the partnership. I love the. Um... I love it when you see the lights switch on and they make a change and they call you back and go, hey, it's making a difference. I love that part. And people think, well, hang on, you know, when they're at the top of the food chain, yeah, they're at the top of their game, yeah, many people think. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are normal humans just like everyone else and it can be a really lonely place. And when you think of the sporting world, even the number one tennis players in the world have a coach. The um, all the top basketball teams, the top sporting teams, they all have a coach. 
Yeah, Batman had an Alfred. Luke Skywalker had Yoda. I mean, every, all of the people that we think are the heroes at the top of the game usually have someone with them that is a sounding board. And particularly for people at the top of the food chain in organisations, it can be a really lonely place. And there are mm. things that you want to work through and you want to, you want to share with people that it's really hard to do with people that report to you, answer to you, um, or have some kind of um, personal interest in your relationship. You, you need to go outside of the organisation quite often to get that sounding board that is truly independent and doesn't have a vested interest in the advice. Once they get there, everyone wants a piece of them. Everyone thinks they can do their job better than them. Um, everyone has their own piece of advice that often suits their own interest. And so we find there's a real hunger from people at the top of organisations of, I need a strategic sounding board. I need someone outside of this. It's a confidential environment. It's a safe environment where I can just bounce some things around. I can, you know, I can talk really clearly about the things that I'm afraid of without freaking out the whole organisation. You know, if you imagine the pilot of a plane coming over the PA system while they're in midair and saying, ladies and gentlemen, I just want you to let you know I'm really scared right now. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably not a helpful scenario. No. Um, so likewise, they need a place where they can process that stuff mm. um, that won't freak out the rest of the organisation. They can process stuff and then they can come out um, with a strategy and a plan that they're committed to, that's strong, that's been worked through, that's genuine. Yeah, absolutely. The coaching is just so transformational. Um, and I think that every, I think everybody should have a coach, um, yes. you know, throughout life. And if you don't have one, go and find one. Um, but, you know, the, the coaching space in healthcare is kind of almost relatively new at the lower levels throughout the healthcare organization. It's not something that has been uh, prominent with our allied health colleagues. They do a lot of supervision, but yes. as nurses and doctors, you know, we just go to work and think that we can just, you know, get through it all and there's no problems whatsoever. Um, so in terms of coaching and, and how did you find coaching? Like how does that, how has that transformed your life? Finding well, I guess, coach? yeah, going back into my church world, it was an environment where people were committed to improving themselves. And so that's kind of where I learned a lot of this stuff around, you know, having a mentor in your world, having a coach in your world, um, someone that calls you up to your best self, someone that says, hey, dude, you know, you're so amazing. What are you doing hanging around that stuff? Like, you know, or are you aware that that's how you're coming across? That, yeah, it, it was an environment that was really committed to um, strong, healthy relationships at every level. And that's where I first had the experience of having someone that would speak into my life, sometimes on a peer level, sometimes on a mentor level, but both were extremely valuable. And so then when I stepped out into the corporate world, some of the early um, early management training that I got put on as a new leader, we had access to coaching in those environments. And I just loved it. I just ate it for breakfast. Thankfully, the organization I was a part of chose really good people, yeah. um, you know, who, you know, some of whom I still have some kind of interaction with, you know, 20 years down the track um, mm. at times. And 
I guess I was just really blessed to have some good experiences early on because I know people have had some, you know, horrible experiences mm. um, with coaching as well or just really superficial stuff that really never made a difference and may have turned them away. I guess I was blessed early on to have some really good experiences that helped me solve key problems and that helped me work on stuff that set me up for success mm. going forward. So you know, I was a beneficiary of you know, the best side of it. Yeah, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah, and I think a lot of people think that a coach is maybe there to be a general buddy or someone that's going to like just sit there and empathize with you and Uh and agree. Um, Uh But that's not the case, is it? No, a good coach won't do that. A a good coach will really confront some stuff and will leave you feeling simultaneously, if it's done well, quite uncomfortable and really grateful all at the same time, which is a really Mm. weird mix of man, I'm glad you had the courage to say that because this thing I'm doing really is stinking up my world and I wasn't aware of it. And now you pointed it out, I can do something about it and I can see the difference. Yeah, absolutely. So within your work, obviously, I love this slogan that you have on your website and it's about, um, we're about saving humans from bad leaders. And I think I just Uh, saw that and I loved it. A little giggle. Um, (laughs) Tell us about, you know, how we can elevate leadership within healthcare, you know, what does that look like? So I think understanding where we're at at the moment is helpful. And that is so many leaders in the clinical space come to their position through a clinical pathway. And often they are the most technically or clinically competent person on the team. And as a result, they get promoted to be a people manager. Now, what we found from our data is that there is actually zero correlation between good clinician and good leader. Sometimes it's slightly inversely correlated. Mm. And so leaders often come to the table thinking like a senior clinician rather than a leader of people. And they are two, both are needed. We need senior clinicians. We need technically capable people. Mm. But it is a fundamentally different skill set to the skill set required to be a good people leader. And... I think we're only just starting to scratch the surface of making that transition. Um, And, yeah, I've seen a couple of good examples. One of my longer-term aged care clients promoted their, you know, someone who was the head of marketing at HR into a chief operating officer role because they needed to change the level of engagement. And it was something that worked brilliantly for a time because it created that engagement. The the technical expertise was already there. They didn't need more of it. What they needed is someone who knew how to create an environment that brought the best out of these people. And that's what this person was able to do. But I still think we're in the early days of moving from that senior clinician mindset to what does it take to be a real people leader? And the Royal Commission in the aged care industry has highlighted this quite a bit. And so we're starting to see the needle at least move in terms of curiosity and are starting to see leadership as a distinct skill set and career path in and of itself. And I think that is a good shift, but I think we're in the early days of that. Yeah, it's a really interesting point you make because as you say, as you move up, you're a senior clinician, you move into leadership. But the challenge there is that you have all the clinical skills, but no leadership skills. And I guess the the team look to you for both. And Mm -hmm. often I reflect on a role that I've been in where I've been, you know, a clinical nurse consultant slash nurse unit manager wearing two hats. And you almost everybody expects you to be the expert in clinical life and world. 
but also you've got a budget of 4 million, 50 staff, you know, people problem. Like it almost seems like it's just not viable um, to be able to work through that. Yeah. And it's not often that you'll lie awake at night worrying about a clinical problem that you're trying to solve. Most of the time you're lying awake at night thinking about the people issues, the engagement issues, the the staff members that are just not, you know, towing the line or, or not mm. fitting our value set and are creating conflict around them. They might be brilliant at the clinical stuff, but the way that they're going about it is causing havoc around them and they're completely unaware of it and not really open to the feedback around it as well. Yeah. And that's where cultures can start to become toxic, where all we value is the clinical stuff, but we don't understand that the environment that we create, the culture that we create around that is actually what delivers care to patients. Mm. It's, it's not just we need the clinical expertise or we shouldn't be in business. No question about that. We're not saying dumb that down in the slightest, but what we are saying is we need to increase the focus on the environment, the greenhouse, the system and the culture that sits around our clinical expertise that enables our staff to be more engaged and satisfied because when our staff feel treated well, feel looked after and feel empowered, they deliver better care. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, So how would you define a high-performance culture in healthcare? In healthcare, what I would say is, High-performance healthcare looks like the whole system works together to provide excellent care to the patients for the long term. And it's both health outcomes, but also it's a great experience. So it's one thing to go through a healthcare um, system and a healthcare event and come out and go, well, I'm healthy now. They fixed that, but geez, it sucked. <laughs> you know, that the environment was horrible and I was so glad to be mm. out of there. As distinct from... Not only did I get well, but from end to end, from the moment that I entered the emergency room or the moment I came in via ambulance or the moment I presented for my procedure, from that moment to the moment I checked out was just the most brilliant experience because when people are coming in for healthcare often they're afraid, they're anxious, they they, they may have an uncertain future, it may be at the very least they're not feeling well which is not great, through to I could be facing something life-threatening, I could be facing something serious. It is a really vulnerable time in somebody's life when they come into a healthcare system. And what we want is a system that not only helps them heal, but actually provides an environment of safety, of comfort that reduces people's fear and anxiety Mm. in that process. And we also know that when people's fear and anxiety is reduced, they experience better health outcomes Mm. as well. But it's this Mm. end-to-end connectivity of from the moment I get in to the moment I leave, every part of the system works together to provide excellent health outcomes, but also an excellent experience around that. Mm. Mm. And what do you think is, or what have you seen are the biggest challenges in developing that culture? Like what are the common themes Honestly, it's not too different from just about every industry because every every outcome that we're looking for, you know, whether that is an organisation that sells, you know, stereo audio equipment like a JB Hi-Fi, whether it's an FMCG like a, you know, a Wrigley or a Hershey's or something like that through to healthcare, there is, there's an outcome that we are aiming for. There is a mission. There is a purpose for that organization's being. And then there are multiple systems at work and each system in itself needs to be high performing, but then each of the systems need to integrate with each other. So in a car, 
there are multiple systems that work together to create that engine. Yeah, you've got the fuel and ignition system, the electrical system, the cooling system, lubrication, transmission, exhaust. Now, you could have a great functioning um, ignition system, but if the fuel system's broken and isn't sending fuel into the ignition system, you've got yourself a problem. The whole system breaks down. So, you know, in healthcare, you've got the clinical system, but then you've got the getting the meals, you've got the hygiene, you've got the cleaning, you've got all the financial and billing stuff, you've got you know, all your testing and pathology, all of these different systems that are all operating. And each of those need to be high-performing in themselves, but often where things fall down in this wonderful, said sarcastically, thing that we call silos, is that the systems don't integrate. The systems don't work with it. The doctors don't work well with the nurses or vice versa, um, which is a common, yeah, a, 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 a common place where, uh, where, where heads kind of clash together or you know, pathology doesn't get their results through. It's the, when the systems don't integrate, that is where some things can break down. And that's mm -hmm. often where the challenges are because each of us within our systems have our own interests. We've, we've got our own KPIs that we're meant to deliver on. And we often see others in the organisation as a threat to my KPIs mm -hmm. rather than seeing all of us are accountable for one bigger picture thing. And that is delivering brilliant care, brilliant health outcomes and a brilliant experience. And then looking at how do we all work together to achieve that end, yeah. that, that cultural breakdown of the systems. Mm. Um, and we know, you know in the human body there are 11 major systems that keep us alive and functioning. And if those systems are not talking to each other, mm. we're going to end up in one of the facilities that you know, both of us are talking about right now. Yeah. It's that, that, that integration of the systems that is often a really, a really key factor. Mm. And in your experience, how do we kind of, how do we take steps to overcome that? Because, you know, we all experience silos. We have all heard those dreaded words, you know, we don't do it like that here on this area. Like yes. they do it across the hallway, but we don't do that here. Yeah. Um, how do we take steps to tackle that? Okay. So I, I'd say two things. One of them is Sometimes it's in the design of the system where we are each given KPIs that compete with each other. And so if I'm rewarded on this and you're rewarded on that and those two don't, are not compatible, then we're going to fight because I'm going to, I'm going to work to protect my own, mm. my own bonus, my own career progression, you know, my own good performance review typically. So that, that's one thing, and that's probably the easier thing to fix. What the bigger picture thing is, is whenever you see organisational silos, it is 100% of the time a relational issue between the two leaders at the top of those silos. So to give you a, a simple example of that, in a very different industry to healthcare, this was a utility. Um, and in, in utilities or manufacturing, the typical conflict is between those who are producing the stuff, you know, what they call a production environment, and then the asset and engineering, which is charged with maintaining the stuff. So if you imagine um, you know, a car analogy, it's the car race, the racing car driver versus the pit crew. Mm. And obviously there's an obvious challenge of the, the driver wants to get across the finish line first. So any time they spend in the pits is time away from the race. And so they want to minimise that. But the reality is if they don't go into pits at some time, the cars, the tyres are going to blow out, the engine's going to blow up, you're going to run out of fuel. You know, both have to work together. Now, in this organisation, the classic conflict was there. So the CEO thought, right, I'll fix this to make sure that you both understand each other's world. I'm just going to swap your roles. Mm. 
So they literally took the head of production, made him head of asset, the head of asset became head of production. And all it did was change the nature of the silo, but the silo continued because those two didn't have a good relationship. Mm. And until those two worked out their relationship, yeah, daylight between two leaders at the top creates gaping silos by the time you get to the front line because each person lower down in the silo has an interest in protecting their relationship with their, yeah, their big boss. Yeah. So it always, always comes down to the people at the top of the silo, wherever it is, wherever that divide is, need to develop a really strong relationship of trust and on the KPI side, find a way to articulate the KPIs of both areas in terms of our aim is to get this car across the finish line, both fast and operational. Mm. It's fascinating because I can reflect on many a times whereby there is a real disconnect, a real obvious disconnect at the top of the chain and um, verbal disconnect. And yeah. that just, you know, just that analogy there, you can just see how it all kind of yeah. breaks down and kind of falls apart as you work through. And then yeah. you can see why then we become so protective of a little zone, a little corner of the world, whereby yeah. we're trying to do our absolute best. But it's so, what I'm hearing is like misalignment, right? Like there's just Absolutely complete misalignment. That. Yeah. When I see one of my teammates as a threat to my own KPIs, mm. the whole, I mean, imagine that on a sporting team. Yeah, imagine a soccer team where, you know, the centre forward and the centre back see each other as a threat to their own KPIs and don't work together, the whole thing falls down. And, and it's just like that. We have to find a higher purpose that we are both on. And once we're at the executive table, we have to understand that we're there as a leader of the whole organisation. We're not there to get what I need for my area, like I, like it's a representative democracy yeah. you know, at, at the executive table. It is not. You're there as a leader of the whole organisation and together we are responsible for the whole organisation's outcomes. Mm. And so we have to find that common place that says, this is my piece of the puzzle, this is my piece of the puzzle, this is how we work together to deliver the overall goal. Yeah, yeah. So in your experience, how do you bring those people together? What does that look like? Oh, there are as many answers to that <laughs> as there are um, days in the year, mm. days in the millennium even, because what we need to find out is fundamentally what's at the core of the trust issue between mm. them. And sometimes that's history. Sometimes they've screwed each other over in the past. And so mm. there's history where they've got, I will never trust that person again. And at the heart of any high-performing team, the foundation is we trust each other. And that's not just if you say you're going to be here at 9.30, you'll be here at 9.30. That's a different kind of trust. The trust is I can actually say, hey, I'm struggling and I don't know what to do and I need your help mm. and believe that my colleagues have my back. It's that kind of trust that we have to work to build. And so sometimes that is there's some history between us that we need to work through and resolve and clean up. There's actually some apologising that needs to happen often often both ways. Other times it is simply that people have come through cultures where it was actually set up that you fight each other and often the CEO liked that. I like that my executives fight each other and, you know, it makes them tougher, but what they don't know is it also has a whole lot of side effects mm. um, where people waste their time fighting each other rather than taking on the market share challenge yeah. Yeah. Um, together. So, um Really what it comes down to is this is a relational exercise, not a cognitive one. And that's where it gets interesting. That's where it gets emotional. And that's where um, a lot of leaders and a lot of coaches just go, oh, it's just too hard. 
well, it's only too hard if I'm afraid of the intense emotions that comes up in the process of trying to resolve some of that stuff. You know, when they when, when leaders can start to have the 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 conversations of, hey, when you went behind my back like that, that really undermined me and it's made it really hard for me to trust you. Can we talk that through and work that out and work out how we're going to work together? Those conversations, especially in fast, like healthcare is such a fast moving environment. We often go, well, I don't have time for all that fluffy stuff. I've got people to care for. But the reality is when we make time for that stuff, people get cared for better. So almost about raising that consciousness and awareness in the individual, that self-awareness, emotional intelligence, um, yeah, within, within the individual. Yeah, fascinating, really That's interesting. a big one. And it's not yeah. something that everyone is up for because self-awareness, it can be elusive, but it can also be deeply, deeply confronting. Mm. And um, especially in the early stages, if you're not used to it, um, it can be really, really hard work. Yeah. But what I continually find is when people actually embrace that, their whole of life gets better, their marriages get better, their families get better, as well as their work life, their relationships get better. And ultimately, their result, the results that they achieve, bottom line, improve. Yeah. That's where it gets really fun. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. And and I've seen those transformations happen, you know, through coaching as well. And I feel like maybe I'm on that path, you know, because I love that inner work and, and self-work. And a lot of clinicians are realizing now that that is critical for the job. It's almost crazy that we've just come to that realization that, yeah. you know, the stuff that we see day to day, we need to be able to process that and understand why we react the way we do and, and the way that we behave in the workplace. Um, and a lot of those things translate into the culture, right? And, you know, how you might lead a team of five people on a shift or on a night shift. Um, and what I've found interesting is learning more about the fact, like how fragile the culture can actually be um, day to day, because I can be there from eight till four or seven till three. And, you know, we're, we're leading Liam's way and then, and, you know, in the team's way, the, the way we've agreed upon. But the minute that I leave at 3.15, you know, it's like it changes depending on the individual there. So yes. not only do those silos at the top have a huge impact, you know, locally, they can also um, rear their heads and create huge problems. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And we want everyone who comes through our system to have a consistently awesome experience and mm. not to be for it not to be dependent on who happens to be the, the numb in charge on that particular shift. We want it consistently across the board, no matter who is there, no matter where you are. Yeah, McDonald's have done a great mm. thing. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of the day, no matter who's leading the shift, your cheeseburger is probably going to look and taste exactly the same. Mm. Now, obviously, that's a physical manufacturing kind of thing, but we need that same kind of consistency in our leadership that no matter who the num is on, on that shift or you know, no matter who is on at that moment in time, everyone who is in our care gets a consistently awesome experience. Mm. And it's about streamlining those processes, systems, making sure that we have them to start with, making sure that we're investing in them and actually consciously deciding, like, what do we want our leaders to look like? Like, you know, what, it, what do they look like? What do our staff need? Um, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do there, haven't we? Yeah. And yeah. on that, I've been working with a group over the last week in a very different industry to this. Um, but the conversation is really similar. We spend so much time talking about what we're doing the task at hand, we spend nowhere near enough time talking through and debriefing on how we're doing what we're doing. And is the way that we're working together actually helping us achieve our outcome? And that's the conversation I really think we can um, 
raise awareness of and raise the practice of is we need to say, is the way that we're working together helping us achieve our goal? Is it neutral or is it getting in the way? Because ultimately it's the organisation, the teams and that whole system working together that, that delivers care. Mm. Just like you take your car to the mechanic to get it checked over to make sure it's all working uh, as well as it can, we kind of need to take ourselves to the mechanic <laughs> on, yeah. on a regular basis yeah. and go, hey, is this working as it should? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think... Um exciting times ahead in that space for healthcare I think as, yeah. as people like yourself are doing this amazing work you've um you know you've developed a lot of culture assessment tools I believe um I'd love you to talk to us a bit about them because culture obviously is super important we've been talking lots about that yeah. but what we find in healthcare is often that we have a lot of resistance around culture assessment tools and people feeling like well why would I do that and I never see the results nothing ever changes and that negative narrative runs yeah. uh, throughout the organization and we get yeah. more engagement yes. um so tell us a little bit about your work in that space Sure. And let, let me answer that whole thing around, you know, we never see the results, nothing ever gets done. That's not an issue of the assessment. That's the issue of leadership around yep. the assessment. And we, every t- you know, when we engage an organisation and we do the measurement stuff, and I'll talk about why we do the measurement in a moment, we always say whenever you ask for feedback, you need to go back and tell them what you told us. Yeah, we need to go back and say, okay, we've collected all of this data. Here's what we've heard from you. Are we hearing you right? Now, give us some stories. Give us some examples. Let's make sure that we're hearing right. And we've been going through a process with the local government um, in recent months that have been through a really horrendous time. And we've gone through this cultural audit process. And we're having this really honest conversation about what it, what it has been like and what we want it to be like. And one of the key outcomes from that, and this was yeah, brought in by a new general manager who is really constructive and really committed to this, is the people feel heard. They feel like their voice is being heard. When they hear through the survey, their voice come back to them in their own words in a way that goes, yep, this is us. This is what I, I always say in those is, does this feel like we're describing your organisation? Talk to me honestly. And they go, you've got it exactly right. I'm like, okay, so you're feeling heard. That's the beginning place. Now let's talk about what we're going to do. What are we going to commit to moving forward? And so the whole thing of nothing gets done isn't an issue of the survey or the tools. It's an issue of the leadership around that. And often, you know, to be honest, some leaders will do it as a tick-the-box exercise to say, well, we do engagement surveys and we do all of that. But when the results come back and the feedback comes in that's a little bit confronting, they go, well, let's bury that rather than let's go, man, we're hearing we've got some serious challenges. We need to make some changes. And especially in Australia, we love honesty and authenticity. When leaders get feedback to say, hey, this is not working for us and leaders stand up and go, we're hearing this is not working for you. So we want to have a conversation about what good looks like. We we want to engage you in this process so that we work together to produce something that we're all proud of. That that is an absolute game changer right there. So that, that answers that little bit about... Um, you know, nothing ever gets done. And yes, I've seen that many, many times over. So before we engage, we always have the conversation of and get agreement up front before one survey gets sent out. This is the process that will happen around that. And that will involve whatever the results say, we're going to put them out there. We're not going to put a spin on it. We're going to call it like it is. 
Um, because when people feel like we're talking honestly, all of a sudden trust gets built. Yeah. So that's the process of it. Now, in terms of the tools in, in healthcare, what we have found, um, and we began this group of tools in the aged care industry because aged care was going through and still is going through a horrendous time. There was a change in the aged care quality standards. Uh, there was a change in the uh, or, and continuing ongoing change in the funding model called ACFI, um, moving towards a more consumer-directed care, which is a more NDIS-like approach to funding, which means all the organisational systems have to change. Um, and it's not an industry that is known for its change agility. And then you add the Royal Commission on top of that with the increased scrutiny, feeling like they're living under the microscope. And then from there, you add a global pandemic. It's an industry that's been in a world of pain. And back in 2013-14, the Australian government did a great project to help identify what good looks like in, that in the care industry. And they came up with a, a leadership capability model that was actually quite good. Um, and it's actually good enough to use across just about any industry, but its language is well customised to aged care and healthcare. Um, but then there was no way of measuring it. So the government put, you know, tens of millions of dollars towards developing this framework and then kind of hoped people would just adopt it. But, of course, there was no funding behind that. So um, my dear friends and colleagues, um, Ashley and Abby Hunt, said we've got to find a way to measure this because if we can't measure it, we will never move it. We need to make it much more concrete for people what good looks like and um, yeah, what, what are the micro skills and the micro behaviours attached to being a good leader of self, to being a good leader of others, to being a good leader of business, a good leader of change and, and to be a good leader around quality standards. And so they developed a tool called SILCA, which is the Care Industry Leadership Capability Assessment. And it takes that leadership framework and measures it in a statistically valid and reliable way. So we partnered with two Australian universities to develop that tool um, and it continues to develop. And then um, we also had a tool called CISCA. We developed a tool called CISCA, which is the Care Industry Staff Capability Assessment. And it looks from end to end at the capability of the care staff, um, but it also gets customer feedback, customer satisfaction. It gives your organisation a net promoter score. And from that tool, we have seen some really dramatic changes in culture because of the conversation uh, that tool has created. Now, because aged care and healthcare and hospitals are a very similar system, there's a few little tweaks that are different, but a very similar system, we've found that it's transported over beautifully. And hence, we've, we've now got, as well as Silka, which is care industry, we've got Hilka, which is the health industry leadership capability assessment, and then Hiska, which is the health industry staff capability assessment. And the tool, these tools are only a, a few years old. We've been working with diagnostic tools for 20 years or more, so we've got a lot of experience in using them. These are, are relatively new because of the, the development that happened in aged care, um, but we're already starting to see some really significant um, transformation efforts that are very exciting that will be quite literally saving lives. Um, we've been working with um, a maternity ward in a state 
on a different side of the country to where we are, um, where the midwives and the uh, the doctors were absolutely at odds to a point where it was really putting women's lives in danger. And this this survey and this intervention brought the issue to light. And so then we entered into a conversation process around it where finally everyone went, we have to fix this. And the difference that that will make will literally save women's lives. It's, it's, yeah, it's wow. really exciting. It becomes more than just a survey. It's meant to promote a conversation that brings us together so that that whole system works together to deliver, as we said, excellent mm. care and an excellent experience. Yeah. So talk all day about that one, as you can probably yeah. gather. So empowering. Yeah, so empowering. Because yeah. as you say, Jenna, I think that, that is one of the key missing pieces in, in the healthcare system is that measurement. And I love when you said measure and move it, you know, or measure and manage it, you know. Uh, we just don't do enough of it. We measure vital signs every bloody day. Absolutely. And we we then inform our care plan, but we don't do that for the people, the culture. Um, the we've got we've got no processes. Yeah, that's one struggle that I found in in my leadership journey was, you know, having nothing. I find it fascinating yeah. that I walk into this role and you have nothing to measure anything, not a thing. That's right. I'm sitting there creating spreadsheets and you know trying to find my own processes and systems, yeah. but that's that's just adding to the silo, right? Yes. Because yes. um. All of a sudden, because I have something, my manager says, oh, maybe you should give that to the other person. And you, and then the other person's like, I, I don't want Liam's crap, you know, and yeah, yeah, it becomes yeah. this cycle. And you, we just build all these um, issues as we kind of work through it. It's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So it gives us something that says, here's what good looks like. It gives mm-hmm. us an objective thing. And yeah, as a coach, and I, you know, in your coaching practice, you would find this too, that yeah, you get together with someone and yeah, without any kind of objective measurement tool that's got some feedback attached, you're kind of like, okay, how are you going? What challenges mm. are you facing? And all of that is that's a good and a useful conversation. But all you've got is that person's own story through their own cognitive bias. And if their self-awareness is low, you're getting a distorted view of reality as a coach. And so the advice that you may end up giving them may not be attached to reality. And so bringing in some objective feedback into the process, it's it's not quite as good, but it gets very close to me having a camera following you around all the time, observing your behaviour and going, hey, I know you're saying you do this, but this video footage tells me, or this data feedback from your peers, from your direct reports, from your manager tells me that you may be intending to do that, but it's not coming across. It's not translating. Let's talk about that. Mm. And that's the beauty of objective data. You know, like you said, we do it all the time in healthcare. We're measuring vital signs. And so that data informs what we do. I always say, change your data stream, change your life. When you're measuring the wrong vitals, if you're measuring the wrong indicators in a person, you're going to mistreat what's going on. Mm. Likewise, when we get the right data, the right measures of, A, what does healthy and good look like? We know that in healthcare. We know that a healthy temperature is somewhere around 37 degrees. We know that a healthy blood pressure is around 120 over 80. We know that healthy oxygen saturation, you want you know, 98, 99. Um, And when something's different from that, we know to intervene. We haven't had that, especially that's specific to aged care, healthcare, um, before of, you know, taking your leadership pulse, taking your leadership blood pressure, doing doing a bit of an MRI Mm. on what's happening in your leadership world. And now we have that. It just gives us exciting potential to be able to move the dial and increase that capability so that yeah, we can make a difference to people who are coming in at a really vulnerable time in their life. 
Yeah, it's so exciting. And, you know, through all of that, although it sounds like a lot of hard work, I'm sure that that transforms, you know, not only patients' lives, but your, like people's career and their happiness in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, no leader, no nurse, no manager goes to work to do a bad job. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, absolutely that, true. that moment of discomfort and, and challenging yourself um, through that process sounds like it would be truly transformational and empowering. And let's get real. It's hard work already. Oh, yeah. Like the, the, the job is hard work already. Like the stuff that you're faced with day in and day out, you know, the, the, the sheer speed at which you have to move. Mm. Um, it's hard work already. So why settle for making it harder for ourselves? I mean, if I use a financial equivalent um, illustration, you know, quite often we go into an organisation and say, this problem is costing you $2 million a year. We can quantify it. Are you willing to spend $100,000 to fix a $2 million problem? Mm. and sometimes the answer is no I, I just can't find that I'm like well you're spending it already like let's get real you're spending that money already why not redirect some of that so you know to bring the metaphor across we're doing yeah. some hard work already why not redirect some of that energy to fixing some of this problem mm. so that you know six months from now 12 months from now we're in a fundamentally different position to where we are now it just it's going to be hard work no matter what I do yeah. but yeah. We often don't take into account the cost of maintaining the status quo mm. right now. It's already costing us something. So what mm. if we re- redirected some of that cost, some of that energy into something that's going to mean I'm going to fix something down the track that's going to make my life better. It's going to make our life as a team better and more productive and it's going to give a better experience for those that we're caring for. Absolutely. I'm sold. I'm sold. Let's do it. Bring it on. <laughs> um, as we kind of come to the end, I want you to talk about mindset because mindset came up in your book. And um, thank you for sending your book through to me um, a lot. Pleasure. And um, our, and mindset is a big part of this podcast. Actually, we talk about doing the yeah. inner work all the time. Yeah. Um, so obviously being a leader is, is challenging, especially when you, like you say, coming from clinician to leader. So how important is it for new leaders, new CEOs, new executives to be really focusing on that mindset? It, it is an absolute critical piece. Um, put it simply, as human beings, we are designed as inside-out creatures, as in we live from the inside out. So too many training programs, behaviour programs, even psychological models at times focus solely on shifting behaviour. But my behavior is a product of my internal culture, the internal world I cultivate inside of me. And so programs that just focus on do more of this and do less of this, that behavior change usually lasts about two weeks Mm. because I haven't changed the mindset that's driving it. Let me give you a really simple example that is so relevant in healthcare. One of the chapters in my colleague Abby's book is that care leaders eat last and sometimes not at all. Now, what we're talking about there is one of the pieces in our data set tells us that care staff and care leaders in particular are great at caring for others and are really lousy at caring for themselves. Mm -hmm. The reason for that is there is a belief on the inside that caring for others is more important than caring for myself. And so the behaviours that we exhibit are a result of that belief. Now, I can say you need to start looking after yourself more and you need to start doing this or taking your breaks or going for a walk around the block before you order your coffee or, yeah, I can give you all of these strategies. But if at the end of the day you still believe caring for others is more important than caring for myself, you will never do those behaviours. Or you might for about two weeks and then go, ah, stuff it. Mm. 
We have to work on the belief that in order to care for others, this is the constructive belief, in order to care for others, I need to care for myself because you can't give out of an empty tank. Mm. Yeah, and what we've found is that leaders that don't care for themselves have higher rates of errors in medication, higher rates of sick leave, like all of the results, yeah, the, the key performance indicators that are really pragmatic and practical start to go down when people don't care for themselves because they're always in a reactive, they're not their best self. Mm. And so one of the first places that we always go, our data tells us this, our experience tells us this, and I can see by your nodding, yeah, you, mm -hmm. you get this too, this is real. We have to change that belief that says, in order to be a good carer for others, I need to care for myself. Once we change that belief, the behaviour starts to follow. That's a, a really simple example, but this really goes down to, you know, going back to my childhood, if I have some really bad experiences in school of authority and I carry that with me and I never actually process that through and I come into the workplace with a deep distrust of authority, I'm going to be an awful team player. I'm going to resist even stuff that is good because I've developed a mindset from some bad experiences in my life that says leadership can't be trusted, authority can't be trusted. And until we engage that belief, we're always going to struggle. I've had this, you know, from things as simple as people being so nervous, giving presentations to people and thinking, I can't do it. And I, I look at them and go, you're amazing at this. Why are you so fearful? Yeah. And then, and we go, so do you remember a time when, when you weren't fearful? It's like, oh, yeah, I reckon around year five, I, I kind of enjoyed it. But after that, so I say, okay, so year five, you enjoyed it. Year seven, you hated it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's better. Okay. What happened in between those two times? They sit there and, oh, I got shamed in front of my whole class for not getting something perfect. The teacher made fun of me. The whole class, I felt utterly humiliated and I vowed I will never do that again. Never processed that, never gave it another thought, but it was showing up in their adult life every time they got up to make a presentation. Once we processed that through, they were actually excited about the next presentation. Mm. Mm. But without engaging the belief and, and the experiences in life that gave us that belief, they would always have that internal conflict. Once we address where that internal conflict came from, we do it from the inside out, the behaviour changes. This is why mindset is so important. We're, we are creatures that are designed to live from the inside out. I love that. I love that. Because we just collect evidence, right? That's what we're doing. We're collecting Absolutely. evidence. Absolutely. Through the whole process. We've been conditioned. We collect the evidence and then we make it mean something. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and Absolutely. We're, we're digging from that subconscious. Um, and often as clinicians operating in a fight or flight, um, you know, so we're never, Absolutely. I never really felt intentional as a clinician, you know, I, I kind of came across that recently. I never actually felt like day to day, I was actually working and being authentically intentional because yeah. it was always in that reactive state. And, you know, it's hard for me to understand, like to, to break that down, but you don't have to operate from that place. Actually, you shouldn't because yes. it's not a good place to work from. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure what you just said there, there are so many amazing little snippets in there mm. that will speak to people a hundred percent. Tell us a little bit about your, the books that you have, um, CEO Strategy and Abby's book. Tell us a bit about those. Sure. So my book is called CEO Strategy, Getting It Right the First Time. Um, what I look at is the 10 critical strategic decisions every new CEO must make. I said to avoid the corporate doghouse, because at the time of writing, um, there was a finance royal commission going on. The Australian cricket captain and vice captain had been stood down and all the data around leadership and trust was, was heading very firmly down the toilet. And um, 
So what I wanted to, to do is set up both new CEOs, but also executives who are saying, I'm ready to make that step. I, I want to step up to that senior seat. That's where I want to be. I want to set them up for success from the get-go. And quite often, you know, I find myself saying to them, you know, and I think this all the time is, man, if you let me help you in the first couple of years, I will save you tens of thousands of dollars on consultants like me down the track. Because when they get to the table, they think, you know, man, when I get there, I'm really going to make things sing. I will do it differently and I'll be this and I'll be that. And once I've got that title, I can really make things happen. And then they get there. And they find it's a much bigger leap than they ever thought. They, they all of a sudden start to understand when the buck stops with me, when everyone wants a piece of me, when everyone has a view on how I should do my job and thinks they can do my job better than me, which is exactly what I thought before I got here too. Yep. Um, <laughs> it is a challenging and lonely place and not a lot of people understand that. And there are some really key decisions that if you get those decisions right early on, it sets you on a path of success. Mm. Um, and having seen, you know, a small number do it brilliantly from the get-go and most try a whole lot of things and learn things the hard way, what I wanted to do is say, hey, if you want to be set up for success, here are the things we've learned from 20 years of working with organizational leaders, of seeing the best, the worst, and everything in between. Here are some key decisions that if you make these right, you will um, you are much more likely to succeed, not just at being a good leader, but succeed at the mission of the organization as well. So that's that book, and that uh, that's an area I really love because you know I've, I've been in senior leadership, I've you know been in the CEO seat, been in an acting CEO seat. I get it. And I remember all too viscerally, you know, that feeling of, man, when I get there, watch. You know? And then you get there and you're like, oh, now I understand why my predecessor did some of the things that they did. Now I understand because when the buck stops with you, you think a really different way. So that is that that is that is for new leader for new mm. senior leaders um, yeah. who are either you know in their first few years it's their first CEO gig or they're at the exec table and want to get there. And even better, if they're at the exec table and want to get there and they get this stuff into them early before they even step into the seat, all the better because you'll have um, a really, really different experience. So that's that book. Love it, yeah. And ah. uh, it's all about how do I create a high-performance culture because it's ultimately your organisation that produces your results. No matter how good your product or your service is, it's the organisation that sits around that, that delivers it, that's the mm. delivery system. And it's usually not, like I said, the product. Like, yeah, we lie awake at night solving product problems sometimes. More often than not, it's the, it's the problems with the organisation that sits around it that we lie awake at night thinking mm. about. Mm. So that's what that one is about. And then my, my dear friend and colleague, Abby Hunt, uh, wrote a book. It's only just come out in the last two months, as a matter of fact. And I had a hand in advising and, and helping to bring this together as well, which is all about excellence in leadership, culture and safety in the care and health industry. So it really speaks to key issues in healthcare, in aged care, um, issues of, you know, we don't look after ourselves as healthcare leaders, issues of um, yeah, there's an F word that is just seemingly not talked about enough in aged care and healthcare, and that is finance. It seems to be a dirty mm -hmm. word. <laughs> it's a different F word to one that many people are probably <laughs> like, thinking where of. Are you, where are you, where going? are you going with this? Yeah, yeah. The F word is finance, and that is 
if we're going to consistently deliver great care for the long term, we have to increase our commercial acumen. We can't just think like clinicians. We've got to mm-hmm. think like commercial leaders. Um, you know, we often say things like we need more staff, but we see when we measure using our tools that some areas that actually have less staff but exactly the same remit perform better than those with more staff. So often more staff isn't the answer. It's we have to look at how productive are we, what's going on within that system and that team. Um, so that's just a couple of things that we talk about there, but that is more specific to, to um, aged care and healthcare leadership. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So um, you were mentioning earlier, both those books are available, is that right? Indeed you do. And boy, do I have an offer for you and your listeners. <laughs> Tell us. So what I would love to do as a gift to your listeners, I want to offer both of those books to you complimentary. Thank you so much. We're here to help. We're here to help. And so if you are at the senior leadership table, if you're an executive, you're a relatively new CEO in your first few years, well, this is your first CEO gig. My book, CEO Strategy, would be perfect for you because mm. whether you are in healthcare, aged care, FMCG, self-storage, manufacturing utilities, it's all the same. Mm. You know, the, the issues are the same. You're running an organisation and you're dealing with humans. The product is different. Some of the systems and processes are different, but the core issues remain the same. And so that's what that one is about. Um, if you're a leader at any level in the aged care industry, if you're an HR director, uh, a people and culture leader, a board member, yeah, anywhere down to a frontline leader, this um, Abby's book is definitely for you. And so what I want to offer you is, um, and I'll give you the address before we, uh, before we hang up, is you might want one of them, you might want either of them, or you might want both of them. That is the offer I'll make you today. If you want mine, you can have it. If you want Abby's, you can have it. If you want both, you can have it. Awesome. That is so generous of you. Thank you so much. I'm sure there will be lots of people uh, taking you up on that offer listening. Um, and we'll have the, the link and everything else down in the show notes. I can vouch that I have read the CEO strategy book um, and it's it's brilliant. And uh, I had lots of aha moments there, even though I'm not at the CEO level um, in my coaching business, I am, but yes. <laughs> not in, in healthcare. But there was lots of transferables that I could definitely take back uh, to clinical life and, and managerial life uh, as a leader. So thank you so much for that. That's amazing. That is an absolute pleasure. Thank you. As we wrap up today, um, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Uh, the work that you do is is phenomenal and I'm so happy that there are people like yourself and Abby and your team um, and the broader team that do all of this amazing work. Uh, helping us create a better healthcare system um, and saving humans from bad leaders because that's uh, super important. (laughs) It really is. It's been so great to chat with you. I've loved connecting with you and hopefully we'll get to do a whole lot more of this in the future. Absolutely. I'd love you. You're always welcome to come back anytime. (laughs) Let's set it in the calendar and make it happen. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you. Is there anything else you want to offer or, or, or where can people find out more about you? Sorry, I'm jumping. Okay, so it, time. not a problem. Not a problem. If you want the book offer, bit.ly forward slash HPN book offer. That will be in the show notes, I believe. bit.ly forward slash HPN book offer. You can grab, um, you can take me up on the offer of either or both of those books. If you want to find out more about me, leadershipgenius.com.au is my website or um, look me up on LinkedIn. Beautiful. Tim, thank you so much. Love your work. Thank you. 
Great to be with you, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. I would love if you could leave a review and rate this podcast wherever you listen. Please feel free to tag us on social media and make sure you share it with your nursing peers so they don't miss out on all this goodness. Until next time, my high-performance friends, stay forever curious.